From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Donald Trump's place on the 2024 ballot has been in question all week in a Denver courtroom. We'll get an update on that case. Then, Simon Kent Fung wanted to be a priest, but he couldn't reconcile that with being gay. I spent most of my 20s pursuing various forms of conversion therapy with therapists and group therapy and various ministries so that I could follow what I felt was my calling. The whole experience was incredibly isolating for him, lonely, which is why he was so moved to learn about a Boulder woman who had the same struggles. Now he's made a podcast about her journey, which painfully ended in suicide. My hope is that the church can listen to our stories because both Alana and myself took to the church's teaching wholeheartedly embracing it. When your car needs too many expensive fixes, donate it to CPR. It's super simple. We'll even get it picked up at your convenience. The proceeds support CPR, the service you turn to for fact-based news and new and timeless music. Let your old car make great radio happen. Call 866-415-0005. That's 866-415-0005. Or get started at CPR.org slash support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Testimony is winding down in a lawsuit to keep Donald Trump off the GOP primary ballot in Colorado. At the heart of this court case, did Trump's involvement in the January 6th Capitol siege rise to the level of insurrection, making him ineligible? The ruling, which will not be immediate, could have an impact beyond Colorado. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland has been in the Denver courtroom all week. And hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. How did plaintiffs make their case that January 6th was an insurrection and that Trump was part of it? It was a bit like the January 6th select committee hearings. The group that filed the lawsuit, which is four Republican voters, two unaffiliated voters, with coordination from a liberal group, tried to establish that the riot at the U.S. Capitol was an insurrection. They called two law enforcement officers who tried to defend the Capitol that day and a Democratic congressman who was inside the building. And they all talked about what they experienced, how violent it was, and how frightened they were, not just for what was going to happen in the short term, but what it would mean for the country and for democracy, too. And then put a finer point on how they tried to tie Trump to all that. That's the challenge here for plaintiffs, not just proving there was a violent insurrection, but that Trump engaged in that insurrection and incited it. The petitioners had an expert on far-right extremism, sociology professor Peter Simi from Chapman University, and he said Trump's language, not just that day, but leading up to it, fit in with the way far-right groups talk about violence. He said there was a shared language between Trump and far-right extremists where it doesn't always have to be a direct call for violence, but there's a code as to what certain things mean. Simi testified that they were galvanized, energized, and mobilized by Trump's call for them to be there on January 6th, especially this now infamous tweet urging, quote, be there, will be wild. It represents the worldview in terms of seeing these imminent threats, these existential threats 
deeply tied to the idea of the stolen election, but also more broad than that, that, that you know, basically our, our country is on the verge of being completely taken away from us. The plaintiffs also had a national security expert who explained what Trump could have done to try to stop the violence at the Capitol once it started, but said he resisted doing so. How did Trump's lawyers try to counter that testimony? I'll say that the former president has not been in Colorado for any of this. That's right. Well, they pushed back a lot on this claim that Trump's language was really that far outside of normal political speech, where politicians might urge their supporters to, quote, like, fight like hell or tell them what you think without meaning any kind of violence. They played various clips of Democrats saying similar things and said it's all First Amendment protected political speech. Here's Trump's attorney, Scott Gessler. All that they had were his speeches, and nothing has ever asked for violence. Nothing has ever urged anything remotely close to an insurrection. He's asked people to behave patriotically, peacefully, respect law enforcement. He said peace multiple times on January 6th. Common stuff and stuff that you know any, I think, politician or any president would be proud to say. Is that Scott Kessler, like the former Secretary of State in Colorado? Yes, yes, okay, he's the just... former Secretary of State. All right. Trump's defense also had four witnesses who attended or helped plan that rally at the Ellipse on January 6th. And they said it was a typical Trump rally, that people were not there seeking to do anything violent, that they personally didn't hear anyone responding with violent rhetoric to Trump's speech. The idea here is that Trump didn't engage in what happened next, although some of those people who testified vehemently disagreed that it was an insurrection. I understand one of the defense witnesses was Colorado's own Ken Buck. The congressman testified Thursday. And that stood out to me, Benta, because just this week in announcing he wouldn't seek re-election, Buck excoriated his party for clinging to lies that the election was stolen and for minimizing what happened on January 6th. Seems there's a contrast there. What did he have to say to help Trump's case, Mr. Buck? Well, Buck's role was really to testify that he believes the findings of the January 6th Select Committee present a one-sided version of that day and not a full picture of what happened. Buck said he thought the questions were asked to elicit answers that would demonstrate Trump's involvement and culpability in the events of January 6th, but he thinks that committee failed to tell the other side of what occurred. I voted to certify the election. I thought what happened on January 6th was obviously bad. Um, It was a riot in in the Capitol building. It was meant to disturb a proceeding. And I felt that the the, the parts of the report um, that I saw described those things. It it went beyond that in other areas. That's where I think the the cross-examination in terms of the president's culpability would have been important. Trump, though, ignored the subpoena from the January 6th panel, calling the inquiry a total bust. So it's not that they didn't try. Bento, the heart of this case is the 14th Amendment and what's known as the Disqualification Clause. When you and I talked ahead of the hearing, you said it's rarely been used and there isn't much precedent then for the courts to go on here. Did you learn more about it through the course of all this week's hearing? We did. The plaintiffs brought in a legal scholar, law professor Gerard Magliaga from Indiana University. He went into the history of how this amendment came about after the Civil War during Reconstruction. 
Basically, there were elections held throughout the South in 1865, after the war ended, and many of the same people who had been in office before the war and had left to join the Confederacy were returned to office, and some of them showed up to the new Congress and essentially said, okay, we're here to take our seats now, as if nothing had happened. And congressional Republicans were very upset at this uh, idea. They felt that this was wrong. And so they said, look, if you've taken an oath to this Constitution and engaged in an insurrection, you can't hold office again. And a few people were actually removed from office in the 1860s under the 14th Amendment uh-huh. during this period after it was ratified. But Magliaga said two insurrections that really inspired this discussion happened much earlier in the 1700s. That was about farmers in Pennsylvania upset about new taxes. In those instances, though, there didn't end up being any violence. Really going into the annals of history here. Yes. He really showed primary source documents from those time periods. So today's the final day of the hearing, and then closing arguments are scheduled for November 15th. Do we, do we know why there's a gap? The judge set aside this week for the hearing. Both sides want time to process all the information and prepare those closing arguments. And the judge has said she hopes to have her ruling out before Thanksgiving. Any sense how she's viewing the arguments at this point? It's really tough to know that. I talked to attorney Jessica Smith. She's a partner at Holland & Hart Law Firm, and she's been following this case. She said one big question will be whether the judge views Trump's speech as protected by the First Amendment. She notes that inciting violence is not protected speech, but that's just one part. So let's assume you agree that the folks who stormed the Capitol committed insurrection. Let's, Let's take that assumption. Was what President Trump did enough to engage in that? I think that's a very interesting legal question and different than the First Amendment question, which has a lot of well-established doctrinal precedent and, and cases that Judge Wallace can look to in deciding it. That question of engaging in insurrection has much less precedent for her to look to. The judge did show one moment of skepticism when she pushed Professor Simi, he was the expert in far-right extremism, Mm -hmm. about whether his view that Trump's January 6th speech helped provoke the violence. She asked whether that could just be 2020 hindsight, knowing now how that day turned out. Ah, interesting. She was questioning the plaintiff's witness. You reported at the start of this week that Trump's side tried unsuccessfully to get the judge to recuse herself. Yes, they found a donation she made last year to a group that tries to elect Democrats in Colorado, and particularly that's working to unseat Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. They argued that makes her unfit to hear this case. But the judge said she didn't even remember making the donation and wasn't familiar with the group, and she said it didn't inform or influence her opinion on this case. But of course, if she does rule that former President Donald Trump shouldn't be on the Colorado primary ballot next year, you can bet that her political history will be a part of the discussion. Benta, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland, who's been covering this week's hearing over whether former President Donald Trump ought to be removed from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. When we come back, a new podcast about parallel lives two Catholics set on joining the clergy and who turned to conversion therapy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
When it comes to elections, an off year doesn't mean Colorado voters get to take the year off. Ballots for the fall election are out, and CPR.org is your place for answers to your questions about voting, election security, and this year's two statewide questions. That's all at CPR.org. If you live in Denver, denverite.com has you covered for local elections. And there's a voter guide for Southern Colorado at krcc.org. Happy voting! It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She wanted to be a nun, but Alana Chen of Boulder struggled to integrate her Catholic faith with being lesbian. It led her to a form of conversion therapy. Later, in 2019, when she was 24, Chen took her own life. A thousand miles away, a young man read her story and was stunned by how similar it was to his experience. Simon Kent Fung wanted to be a priest and hoped, for a time, he could pray the gay away. Now Fung has made a podcast about their parallel lives and his message for other young religious people. It's called Dear Alana. And Simon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. A note that we will discuss suicide. If you need help and want to speak to someone, text 988. Also joining us is Alana's mom, Joyce Calvo. And Joyce, thanks for being with us. Thank you. The two of you have become quite close. Simon, you've moved to Boulder, where Alana lived, in the course of reporting this story. That's right. How does a story become that transformational for someone? I think to tell that story, I have to rewind to 2019 when I first read about Alana's story and her death in the news. I was living in San Francisco. I'm from there. And I remember being in a coffee shop and just completely stunned. I was shaking in the corner, snot crying, because the details of her story seemed to track so closely to my own. She was this incredibly vibrant young person, A-plus student, but she also was very devout, wanted to become a nun since she was a young teenager. And she also kept this secret, and that secret led her um, down various paths, including conversion therapy, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And that really paralleled with my own experience of pursuing that in my quest to become a Catholic priest. And so I remember, yeah, just kind of being completely stunned that somebody shared the story that I, I didn't really talk about with anyone and ended up frantically searching, you know, the internet for more information and ended up finding Joyce on Facebook and, you know, sent her an email and just wasn't expecting any anything. And Joyce did get back to me and we ended up talking on the phone a few months later. And that phone and texting continued for about, you know, the next year and a half. And about two years ago was when I had recently burned out of my, my tech job. I, you know, wanted to take a little bit of a break and I was lying in bed awake at 2 a.m. And Alana's story just kept on haunting me. It felt like there were so many more questions that I, I wanted to find answers for. And the idea to perhaps explore that in audio and, and document that came to mind. And that's kind of what led to this project and eventually me moving out here to pursue it. You've been a practicing Catholic for quite a while. Yeah, all my life. Yeah. 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 And I think you said that you were in tears reading the reports. I was in tears. I was crying. I was kind of in the corner on this little couch in a coffee shop and just like, how would I describe it? This feeling of maybe being struck by lightning or, or just quite shocking because I'd never, 
I guess I, the experience that I had was so isolating that I felt like I didn't have very many people who had gone through this in my life that I knew had known about. And, and, and gone yeah. through this, does that include conversion therapy? It does. You? Yes. Yes. Um, so conversion therapy was, for those who don't know, is, you know, the practice of trying to change one's sexual orientation or gender identity. And it looks quite different now than what it used to. It used to be fairly coercive and perhaps even physically violent. But today it looks a lot more like talk therapy with one-on-one with a therapist. And, and it draws a lot on neo-Freudian ideas of broken parental relationships that you know results in you being gay. And so I spent most of my 20s pursuing various forms of conversion therapy with therapists and group therapy and, and various ministries so that I could follow what I felt was my calling, which was, you know, to be a Catholic priest. To be a Catholic priest. Yeah. yeah. I just want to state very plainly that there is nothing mentally wrong with people who are gay. This has been proven over and over and over again. And so conversion therapy is anathema to what uh, mainstream psychology and psychiatry know. But I I want to go to this idea that you get a message, Joyce, from a stranger on the West Coast, one who has been incredibly moved by your daughter's story. And what was it like to be contacted out of the blue like that? It was wonderful, and it was very supportive. Because I, at that point, like, I I barely could get out of bed. And I don't know if I ever heard the term conversion therapy, but I knew after from reading Alana's journals what was going on. I knew some of some things that she told me, but when I read Simon's email, I always describe it as he was my lifeline. There were so many similarities to Alana, and I needed to know more. And so you then saw the same similarities he felt about your daughter. Right away. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know one person that understood that. People close to me could not understand it, you know. In the podcast, at times the two of you are on this journey of discovery together into Alana's faith and life. You read through things she wrote herself, and here's an excerpt of the podcast. As we poke around the closet... I look up and spot two large piles of spiral notebooks. Are those all the diaries? Yeah, the the ones. She had so many of these, like, like notebooks and notebooks and notebooks. Over the last two years, Joyce has been telling me about Alana's journals. She found nearly two dozen of them in Alana's bedroom, and she's eager to show them to me in hopes that I might have some insight. I help Joyce carry them off the shelf. Oh, this is 2015, Simon. What age would she have? So she would have been 19. 19. Yeah, what was anything interesting there? Well, first she's writing on... This is how firm a foundation, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. It looks like it's a song to him. And then she writes, maybe she wrote a poem, or is this a hymn too? I will come to you in the silence. I will lift you from all your fear. I think it's, a, it's another hymn. Okay. And then she writes, 
Jesus, you keep answering my prayers. I ask, save me from the sin of apostry. Apostasy. That's a medieval term meaning abandoning the faith. Teach me, please. Teach me to evangelize, to proclaim, to live the faith in love, to speak of you at home and abroad. Amen. I've written these same prayers in my journals. And in reading Alana's words, I feel a little less alone. I don't know anyone else who as a teen was this focused on God. Joyce tells me that Alana also stood out for her religiosity. She was known around town as the saint, and not just because of her prayers. Oh my God. What? This is a letter from Shorty. And Shorty was an alcoholic that Alana met under the bridge in Boulder and would read the Bible to her. Shorty lost her children. She was like the worst drunk I met her once. And Alana got her into this program to get sober. We've gotten a general sense of Alana's story. I mean, things people may have read in the newspaper a few years ago. Alana was a devout Catholic. She was also gay and ultimately died by suicide. But there's so much more to her story as the podcast unpacks. She did a lot of volunteer work, didn't she? So much. She did so much volunteer work, and it was all initiated by her. There's this bridge in Boulder on the corner of Broadway and Baseline near the university, and it's slanted, and there's a lot of people there who are suffering from homelessness. And she finally told me she would go up there and read the Bible, and Shorty in particular would lay on her lap, and she would just read and read to her for hours. She worked for the Coalition for the Homeless in Denver. She would start something and lead it, and nobody had told her to do it. It was just purely out of her heart. I was worried for her in some of the areas she was in, Mm. um, especially that bridge in Boulder, because she was like, oh, they're so nice, they're so kind. And I said, well, you never know who's going to come in. That might not be. So I asked her to start going with someone, and she did. How would you describe her personality? Oh, there's so many words. Um, Alana was so kind, so gentle, just so loving, and she was also funny. She really had this sense of humor that was very unique, and she'd make me laugh a lot. She had a lot of patience with me, um, and she had so many friends. Everybody loved her and was attracted to her, her kindness. Her Catholic faith was not because she grew up in a devoutly Catholic home. It's something that she found kind of on her own? Well, there's a story behind that. So I was raised Catholic, and I got in some trouble before, you know, in various ways. But when I was um, pregnant with my son, I wanted him baptized. I had gotten more spiritual at that point, but not in the Catholic way. And my mother would actually call me from New York and, you know, I'm 28, 29. It's Sunday. Have you gone to church today? And I was involved in a 12-step program. And I was like, that's my church, mom. And so I had introduced all my children to that spirituality because it's... You planted the seed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, The 12-step spirituality is a God of your own understanding, very personal. And it could be anything, nature... But I really wanted all my kids baptized. I wanted them to have the sacraments in case they decided they wanted to be Catholic. Um, It was a struggle because I would leave a lot of churches, and I tried other churches, other denominations. And I left so many because of just the way the priest talked, the messages I got. So 
I really struggled with finding the right church. And I understand that seed you planted really sprouted for Alana at a Catholic camp. It did. That's really where it happened. The next Sunday, Alana came back and was very different. You know, the kids would be in the pew and they'd be goofing around and I was sitting there like, oh, God, I got to leave this church again. This is another priest I don't, I can't relate to. But Alana, after the camp, she was sitting on the edge of the pew. She was mesmerized. And I did lean over and I said, well, what's going on? And and she said, I learned at the camp what you're supposed to do in between the things that everybody else does. And I guess it was just being with the Lord, contemplative, maybe. Um, I couldn't believe it. And her siblings were very what's going on with Alana, you know? Yeah. And I, they, I, they saw the transformation oh, yeah, yeah. too. She couldn't take her eyes maybe off Jesus, Mother Mary, listening. I never learned what she was had learned. We're talking about the new podcast, Dear Alana. It's about a young woman in Boulder who died by suicide and the lessons a stranger learned from her life. His name is Simon Kent Fung. In the opening minutes of the first episode, Fung invokes Catholic saints, figures who've died yet are able to influence the living. He draws parallels between the saints and the influence Alana had on him as a gay person who dreamed of becoming a priest. I asked Fung to expound on those parallels. For Catholics, saints are people who are essentially with God in heaven, right? And so they have this you know, special, I guess, role that they play in, in, in the world where they are able to, like you said, influence and inspire the living. And obviously today when we use the word saint, right, it, mm. it often comes from that, like, oh, she was a saint or he was a saint. Like, we mean that they were so good, but it really comes from that kind of religious context. I think what really struck me about Alana's story in learning about it, you know, more through through Joyce and her friends and her, her, her those who were close to her is she was lauded as this saint when she was alive. But, you know, as her life progressed and, you know, as she had pursued her dream of becoming a nun and as she had taken such great lengths that we, we discover in order to follow that dream, mm-hmm. In many ways, she really struggled, you know, reconciling perhaps that deep connection she felt that we hear about in her own writings with the messages she was receiving about how one could be worthy of God and, you know, given this part of her that she was keeping very secret around her sexuality. And and so I think like there's in so many ways this turn in her life where she ends up looking very different than what people would imagine a saint would look like. But I think the irony of all this is that, at least in my life, Alana, somehow her story moved me to the point where I found myself moving here to Colorado. And when I made this podcast, my plan was not to be in it. I wanted to tell Alana's story. I wanted to tell it from a very detached place um, and sort of narrate it. But as I was, the more I was making it and I was getting feedback from listeners, the more it was clear that people wanted to know like why I was telling the story and what, what, what my connection was and why they should trust me. And so I found myself sort of backing into uncovering and revealing parts of my life that I felt like I had in many ways gotten over or, or had moved on from. And because of Alana, I 
end up, you know, in the podcast, really, really processing in real time and revisiting so many of these parallel experiences and find myself revisiting those parts of me that I had been so ashamed of. And in a way, I credit that that healing and that kind of miracle in my own life to Alana. And, and in, in that way, I think her influence from beyond the grave was deeply felt. And I, and I think is another layer of, of, you know, what I would consider Alana's sanctity. Her saintliness. Her saintliness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To make this podcast, you both poured over Alana's journals. In fact, Joyce, you, you brought just an excerpt Mm -hmm. of one today. Do you, do you want to read yeah. this? It's on your phone and it's accompanied. Is this her artwork? Yes. Alana was an amazing artist. And, um, and there's a kind of almost angelic figure maybe on the page that she's drawn? Yeah, it's a dove. A dove, Which okay. represents the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It says, O Holy Spirit, beloved of my soul, I adore you. Enlighten me, guide me, strengthen me, console me. Tell me what to do. Direct my every choice. I promise to submit myself to all that you desire of me and to accept all that you permit to happen to me. Let me only know your will. Amen. It occurs to me that the details of her life and her writings that you shared are very intimate. I mean, you poured over her journals. You looked through her phone. How did you each make the decision to tell the story of Alana's life and death knowing that she couldn't give you permission to do so? Well, um, Alana was interviewed by the Denver Post, and Alana said to me, she said, I'm going to write a book one day. And she said, everyone, everyone needs to know how bad this was. It was really bad. And, and you're speaking of the conversion therapy. Right. And, you know, she didn't call it that, but that's exactly what it was. She made it very clear to you that she wanted to share this experience. She did. Uh-huh. She really did. And um, when I vowed to write this book, I will. But I'm not a writer. Alana was an amazing writer and poet. Um, you will write the book she couldn't, you were saying. Mm -hmm. Aha. Uh -huh. But in her words, it's going to be like literally pages of her writing like this particular writing here. Simon, mm -hmm. how did you R wrestle, uh, with wrestle with that question? Yeah, I mean... it. I talk about it in the podcast, it was a real ethical dilemma for me because when we write our journals, we, we write them for ourselves. Usually we don't expect anyone to read them and we usually don't expect them to be certainly publicized. And I was wrestling with, on the one hand, wanting to respect that privacy and knowing how sensitive a lot of Alana's own writings were. And on the other hand, it was reading parts of Alana's journals where Alana really writes about desperately wanting to be seen mm. and, and feeling like her voice was often ignored and not heard. And she writes this sort of passage about how she has been writing her life away in, this, in these journals all her life, but she really hopes one day someone can find her. And it's a poetic statement that she wrote in that way, but to me, it was a little bit of an opening to be like, wow, I think I think Alana also really wanted to be seen. And so balancing that those desires in the service of telling this story was really my task. And so I was very constantly asking myself, like, what information is really essential to the story and what 
what's just more sensationalistic or, or salacious and, and, mm-hmm. and really staying away from that so that I could, you know, be as respectful to Alana as possible. Well, and in the ways that she made herself seen or wanted to be seen, she also made herself heard because I'm thinking of Alana as a musician. Mm-hmm. On her phone, she had saved voice memos of her songs. We'll hear some of her music as uh, Simon plays it in the podcast. Uh, so we hear Simon's voice in the middle. through song after song of original compositions. Let the music take it to a higher place for a little while. About love, God, regret. this away from me. When she was in her early teens, she started getting counseling from the church about what they referred to as her same-sex attraction. And uh, you make really clear in the podcast that this is something Alana sought out on her own. There was no family pressuring her to do so. Mm. Simon, just say a little bit more about this sort of counseling, which these days, as you told us, I guess looks more like talk therapy. Yeah, so... And talk therapy, like, people might just think, oh, that sounds kind of harmless, you know? Yeah. It's just talking. Right. I mean, this is where I spent a bit of time talking about the layers of and the complexity of this topic, because um, for a lot of people who are in a lot of these church spaces, um, as it was in the case of Alana, clergy are often the first people that people you know feel safe around coming out to. And, and, and Alana came out to her priest when she was 14. And I similarly felt safe to do that to the priests in my life. Those were the only people who knew about the secret that I was keeping. Another parallel. Another parallel. And one of the things that, unfortunately, Alana, the the guidance that Alana got was um, she was told when she'd come out to this one priest in particular uh, not to tell her parents about this. And so Alana complied with that and ended up seeking out the counsel that was referred to her through her church. And that counsel, Alana later describes in, in that interview on uh, in the Denver Post on conversion therapy as something that really she both sought out and at the same time, the worse she got, the more she clung to. And I can really relate to that feeling of desperation because part of the counsel that she was getting that we now have the, the words to describe as conversion therapy involves the idea that one's homosexuality is a pathology and Contemporary conversion therapy can also look like pastoral counsel and life coaching and the idea that you're gay because of failed parental attachment. Um, so in a and lot what, of, what a thing then to say, don't tell your parents, by the way. Mm-hmm. Right. And they often describe homosexuality as, as a condition that can be cured if you heal from some of these wounds. And in many cases, the provider employs a variety of modalities to address what they consider the root of this person's sexuality. And in religious settings, these theories often dovetail and these practices dovetail with theological language around 
the fall or brokenness, um, a spiritual brokenness. And so the accompanying course of action is often prayer and sort of spiritual tactics, if that makes sense. So I, like Alana, really sought out this kind of counsel in order to not be gay and in and order des- to... Despite yeah. the fact that this is an innate trait. Yeah. Right. But, th- but I think for, for those of us who... I talk about often high times the role of shame in all of this, like mm-hmm. when often the shame that we feel growing up, just feeling different, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's the shame that comes from being told that we are this way because of something horrible that happened to us when we were children. And then I think there's the third layer of shame that comes when these attempts to change don't work. I remember feeling so damaged and so broken. That is kind of the often the level of psychological harm that these practices can inflict on people. And these practices don't have to be forced on people. They can be self-chosen and they can still harm people in the same way. Mm -hmm. And Joyce, as you describe it in the podcast, this was a really hard period for you and for Alana and for your relationship. What is something you've learned having gone through it that you might want to share with other parents Well, first of all, she told me she was lying to me and she was sneaking away and going to the 530 Mass every day. And that's where this priest just out of the blue, you know, saw her and said, "Um, did you ever think of being a nun? And then it went from there, a meeting with him without me knowing. I'm 14. She was a minor. So I now, now know that I wish I had asked questions. Every church I tried to go to because and but you know I didn't know Mm. this particular church had a reputation of being liberal at the time she was in this uh, middle school youth group and she was so happy she was so involved she had so many friends so it all looked great to me but hearing that one particular priest preaching I was like what is what's with him it was scary his his words were scary he was talking about exorcism so that alarmed me and that's when I found out she was meeting with him in private, and I went to talk to him. It was a horrible, horrible session. And Alana was very scared and, and crying, but she wanted to still meet with him. I think because certain things she confessed were troubling to her, and, and she felt they were lifted. I was shocked that she told me she wanted to be a nun at that age, and I just said, you know, you have to go to high school and finish high school, college you know, and then talk about it at that point. But I also didn't know she was gay and what they were telling her and teaching her. Simon Kent Fung continues to practice his Catholic faith, and at the same time, he embraces being gay. Now he'll explain what he hopes will come of sharing his story and Alana Chen's. I'll note, we asked the Catholic Archdiocese in Denver if they'd like to respond. They did not reply. Same with the specific church Alana Chen attended in Boulder before she died by suicide. The Archdiocese has told other news media, quote, We reject any practices that are manipulative, coercive, or pseudoscientific. The church has said it, quote, does not practice conversion therapy and remains against any form of coercion or manipulation. I think that part of telling her story is, first of all, really trying to help people better understand what it's like to be a young person who who has a lot of faith, right, who is, is religious and devout, and to really help people empathize with 
the passion that people can feel towards their their religion on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think seeing also the perhaps well-intentioned advice that she received in some of those settings and counsel around her sexuality and that disclosure of that information, hopefully this can serve as a cautionary tale around how to better embrace folks and better detect the kinds of harmful approaches, Mm. which, as you had alluded to, conversion therapy and its associated approaches, both secular and religious, the American Psychological Association has found like no basis for any efficacy of, of this. And in fact, LGBT individuals who have gone through conversion therapy are twice as likely to consider suicide. And so I think that those stats alone are alarming, but at least for obviously Alana at the time and, and myself as well, like we had no idea about this. I think we we were really following what we felt like was the right call. And and unfortunately, often these approaches are tangled up with a lot of theology that is, again, people well-intentioned, probably trying to find solutions and ways to counsel folks that line up with that theology. But I think what we're trying to do is really share the impact that this can have on, our, on a developing psyche. In making this podcast, Simon, you tried to reach the Catholic Church to talk with them about what happened. How did that go? Did they have any response? This is a story that's so close to home in that a lot of the individuals that were in Alana's life were probably one degree separated from me, from friends I have on Facebook. And, you know, in, in the Catholic community is often very small in, in this particular subculture of the huh. Catholic Church. And so I made every attempt I could to reach out to some of the leaders, some of the pastoral leaders in Alana's life. And they either didn't answer me or or declined to comment and and relied on their existing comments that they'd been making to the press. And um, unfortunately, the Archdiocese of Denver here has disavowed any claims of um, counseling Alana in this direction. Some of the individuals employed by the Archdiocese were Alana spiritual mentors, have engaged in some victim blaming, unfortunately, with, you know, as Joyce knows, blaming her for Alana's death in a very quite shocking way. And so I talk about that in the podcast. And and unfortunately, you know, this was not my hope. My hope was that we would be able to have a dialogue. I would be able to hear more from that perspective. Um, but that has not been the case. You wanted that dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to have that dialogue by going into David Nix's office. And Alana was young and she was really shaking and I didn't know. At that time, I didn't know, you know, she was gay. But I was, you know, outraged that he was meeting with her in private. She was a minor. I knew she was getting extremely religious. She loved the saints, and some of them I did as well. But Alana was more my teacher. But he turned everything against my family, every one of my family members in that session. He said I wasn't really Catholic. And I think he had Alana so concerned also to, like, save us. So she... She was constantly praying for everybody in the family. And that anxiety, I can only imagine. But I do want to say that all this time, I introduced Alana to very contemplative Catholics, nuns. Some are gay. Some have a pride flag in their in their church. She loved it. She loved the readings. She came on these retreats with me up at a monastery in Snow Mass. But she couldn't shake the voices from this other priest at St. Thomas Aquinas. 
There was so much indoctrination at a young age from 14. You know, I would go to that church sometimes and they would say, your daughter's a saint. And I, hmm. I kind of was put off by that. I was like, what do you mean? And I felt like it, that kind of language was pressure. To and his... on such a young kid. Oh, Like, yeah. gosh. I'll note that at least one of the priests whom you talk about extensively in the podcast has specifically disputed the idea that the church's counseling led to Alana's mm. decision to take her life. Are you hoping you can change something about the church and how it interacts with LGBTQ identities? Well, um, I got very involved with the teachings of some of the monks at the snow at snow mass um the sisters down in colorado springs i was taught to meditate they teach the truth that we are all god's children no matter what and do you hope then that the podcast results in a in a shift i wish people knew more that there are good parts of the catholic church you know i've experienced amazing catholics leaders and and monks and priests i'd say my hope is to tell an honest story that can really help those who are in the, caught often in this conflict of trying to reconcile their religious identity with their, you know, sexual identity and this these different parts that seem to be in conflict and tension, is to really help help folks be able to feel seen, to feel seen and not alone. You know, to, to, for other Alanas out there, for other other Simons out there who mm. have been who are really struggling and feel so isolated to. For them to be able to hear the story and and to know that there are people like Alana who who are there with them, and my hope is that the church can listen to our stories because both Alana and myself are people that really took to the church's teaching and to the church's counsel and advice really earnestly and really wholeheartedly embracing it, and yet um, it really impacted us in these ways that hopefully people can hear and be um, be open to hearing. Often in the in the church, there's what I call a little bit of a echo chamber or selection bias, because for a lot of LGBTQ folks, they leave, right? And so they're not, those who do remain in a lot of these church spaces don't actually get to hear from some of the ways in which their approaches to counsel and their teachings can actually impact us. And so I think being able to hear our stories is probably the first step to deepening that understanding and having a bit more compassion for its most vulnerable members. What do you accept about yourself today, Simon, that you didn't before you began this podcast? I would say Alana helped me to see more clearly how not broken she was, right? Like often we see more clearly things that are happening to us when we see them happening to other people. Mm. And by by seeing how, as much as Alana struggled with her sense of worthiness, I could see very clearly that she was this incredible person and and that she had nothing to be ashamed of. And so by being able to see that in her, I think I've been gradually able to extend that same compassion towards myself. How is it to hear that, Joyce? I don't know if it's the time now to read something she wrote. She titled this Weakness. And she wrote, To put your weakness in the dark when all it needs is light, a little attention, a little warmth. My mother told me that in my darkest hour, that my greatest weakness would someday become my greatest strength. That which I am most ashamed of, I would soon conquer. Rather than hide my weakness, I must expose it to the light. And like a single flame in the night, I must share it with others to spread the light. 
My mother once told me in my darkest hour that my greatest weakness would soon be my power. And like a flame in the night, I must share it with others to spread the light. Do you hear that when you hear how it has changed Simon? Oh, yes, most definitely. And many people, because every, you know, everything's out there. And she has made um, a big impact. And that's what she wanted. You know, I, I think it, it happens in all religions. I mean, it's not just Catholic or Christian. We had a panel at Out Boulder, and there were people of different faiths. There's a beauty in all the, all the religions. For me, especially the contemplative, where you go within and you find your understanding of this love, you know, or this power greater than yourself. It's just, it's so sad that um, my daughter was pure. Her faith was real. She lived so humble. Um, she did so much for others. I can't say enough of how much she suffered, but um, I exposed her to the truth. But I don't know. I think it, her suffering and, and what was done to her, it was just, it was too much. And I think what's so painful is that it's in such stark contrast to the purity mm-hmm. of her intentions and exactly. her and of her volunteerism, and of her love, and of her heart. Thank you both for being with us. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Joyce Calvo is the mother of Alana Chen, a young woman in Boulder who died in 2019. Simon Kent Fung's podcast is called Dear Alana. We'll have a link at CPR.org. If you're having thoughts of suicide and need to speak with someone, please text 988. And that is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.